So you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew 26. That's where we're going to be at this morning. So just as a little word of warning, um, the first, it's going to sound really depressing, really discouraging a lot of this morning because we're going to be talking about our weakness, our inability, our human condition. And I just ask that you bear with me in all of the seeming discouraging words almost because I think there's such hope that we can get from this if we just just hang with me in these words. Um, I also, I did something this week that I don't often do. I, I organized like actual points, which I don't normally do. Um, the last time I did this in the past, I was able to actually put them on the screen and try to be helpful in that. I was not that organized this week. Um, when I did that, I did not have four-year-old twins living at my house. So I hope you can understand my lack of organization. We're going to jump right into Matthew 26. We're going to be in 30 through 56 this morning. Um, we're going to go through it in chunks. But we're picking up right where we left off last week. Jesus has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples. We saw Judas leave um, the meal and go on to make his plans, his plans to betray Jesus. And then after he left, we saw Jesus institute the, the Lord's Supper, give us his commands on communion and on what that means. And so as we pick up here in verse 30, we're going to see um, that they're leaving um, the dinner and moving on. Let's go ahead and read 30, just 30 through 35 at first. It'll be up here on the screen as well. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You all will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So as they're, they're leaving the Passover meal, um, they're walking out, leaving Jerusalem, going towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see that Jesus, on their walk there, on their travel time, he tells them, you're all going to fall away from me. You're all going to run. You're all going to desert me. And he, he uses a, a passage from Zechariah and says, the, the shepherd will be struck and the the sheep will be scattered. And he says, this is going to happen. And again, this, the same idea as last week. What we said is, God, this is God's plan being enacted. This is God's plan that is being fulfilled. But of course, we can't, we can't move through Matthew. We can't finish Matthew, of course, without seeing big, bold Peter opening up his mouth again. Peter saying something that's going to get him um, called out. It's going to get him um, corrected. We've seen Peter do this a handful of times, right? You've seen Peter in his boldness, in his faith even, jump out of the boat and walk on water. And we see how that ended in Peter's lack of faith. We saw um, back a couple chapters ago that Matthew or Peter would, get a, would also declare that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, and would be said, like Jesus says, you're right. And, and this has been revealed to you by my Father. And I'm going to build my church on you. He called him the rock. But then, very shortly after that, Peter would say to Jesus, after Jesus tells him, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to men. I'm going to die. 
Peter says, no, 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 that's a bad plan. He says, far be it for me to let this happen. This is not going to happen. And I'm actually going to read Jesus' response to this. This is in Matthew 16. Jesus responds and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on the things of God. Setting, not setting your, thing, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Like this rebuke comes when Peter basically says, No, your plans are not good. Like, I've got better plans. That doesn't mean you have to die. That doesn't mean you have to do all these things. Like, that's not a good plan. And that's kind of what we see here in Matthew 26 as well. That Jesus says, you all are going to fall away from me. You all are going to be scattered. And Peter says, no, we're not going to do that. That's not what's going to happen. And in this moment, we see that Peter's actually more concerned with, with showing off his strength, with showing off his faithfulness, than he is in just trusting that Jesus is saying, you guys are going to do this. This has been prophesied in the Old Testament. And Peter, we're going to see that his own self-confidence is what is actually blinding him to what Jesus is saying. His own confidence in his flesh, his confidence in his courage or his faithfulness or his strength, is what is going to actually lead him into sin here. But that's actually my first point, if you want to write this down, if you're taking notes. The confidence in our own ability is merely an attempt to cover our weakness. The self-confidence, confidence in our own ability, is just trying to mask our weakness. But this is exactly what the world says. This is exactly what we're told to do by all of society. Be confident in yourself. Be confident in your ability. Be confident that you can achieve. I talked about this a couple weeks ago as well, but I went to Google and typed in self-confidence. And on the first page, it was 25 killer actions to boost your self-confidence. Six actions you can do every day to build your self-confidence. The list goes on and on about saying that be confident in yourself. Focus on your strengths. Don't worry about your weaknesses. Focus on your strengths. That's what we're told to talk about in job interviews and, and in a lot of different things in society and in our culture. But it was Peter's self-confidence, his belief in his strength, his belief in who he was, that led him to reject what Jesus was telling him. He thought his love and devotion was more than it was. He thought his abilities to resist temptation were stronger than it actually was. If we are trusting in ourselves to be faithful to Jesus, if we are trusting in our abilities to overcome sin, if we're trusting in our abilities to be good, if we're trusting in our abilities to just get rid of the sin in our life, we're going to fail. We are going to fail. That Peter, every single one of us since Peter, all of us in this church, every single person who has been since Adam and Eve have been born into sin. Not born with the ability to sin, but the Bible says born into sin. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to Romans 7. In RCG a couple weeks ago, we, we read through Romans 7. It was like, man, this is depressing. This is a hard read. It's talking about our state as sinners, like our inability to do good. But it's so true. It's so true. I'm going to read 7, uh, 15 through 24. 
Up in here, Paul is describing this battle with sin and our ability to fight sin. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and read with me. It should be on the screen as well. This is Paul. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inward being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you see this battle that, that Paul is talking about? This, this constant, I want to do good, but I'm unable to. I don't have the ability to do good. And I think that, I dare to say that each one of us that if you are a follower of Jesus, we've experienced this. I want to do right. I want to do the will of God. I want to do what the Bible says. But we fall into sin. The same things that, in, that ensnare us time and time and time again. And Paul is saying, you don't, we don't have the ability to carry it out. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. But in Peter's conversation here, in Peter's response to Jesus, we don't see the whole, I, I can't follow you well. I'm going to fall away, so help me, strengthen me. Woe is me. What does Paul say? He says, wretched man am I. Peter's saying, I can do it. I can do it. I'm not going to fall away. I'm going to be behind you. And all the disciples say the same thing. And again, like all the disciples, Peter at the forefront, but all the disciples, we see that it's their self-confidence blinding them to their weakness, blinding them to what Jesus is telling them is going to happen. Like, it can't be our strength that we rely on. It can't be. I don't want it to sound super depressing, but it kind of is that every single one of us are wicked sinners deserving death. Like, that is part of our story, no matter what. Like, that's what our works deserve. And we are incapable to, to do good. We're incapable without someone outside of us. Anything good is not us. It gets better, I promise. But Jesus is going to display a different kind of reaction, a different kind of mannerism, a different type of dependence on the Father God in this next passage. We're going to see him perfectly submit to the will of God. We're going to see him perfectly go before the Father in, in, in dependence and, and in his need, in humility, with trust, and dependence. Jesus is going to pray before the Father. Let's go ahead and read Matthew 26, 36 through 46. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus arrives in the garden um, with his disciples. Eight of them stay at one place, and he goes along with um, Peter, James, and John to um, further into the garden. And what we see is that Jesus is, is already beginning this suffering that, that is going to culminate in his, in his death, in his crucifixion. What he tells them, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I think one thing that's really hard to understand is for us to, to grasp the great the need of Jesus in this moment. It's hard for us to understand this. Because it wasn't that he was praying out of fear of the physical pain that was coming. It wasn't that he was just scared about the nails or, or the crucifixion, the physical action involved. But what we see is his great agony because of what he was about to endure, not just the physical pain. But here's, but here's the thing. That in his great sorrow, in his great pain, he ran to the Father and submitted himself to the Father's will. The perfect Son of God, God himself, wasn't declaring his strength or his that his plan was going to be better than the Father's, like Peter had just done. But he ran before the Father in prayer. And what did he pray? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's asking, if there's another way that the same thing can be accomplished, if there's any other way, can you do that? Is there any other way? But he says, not as I will, but as you will. Again, it's not the nails he's, he's trying to get out of. It's not the, the physical suffering. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he was made to be sin, but there was no sin in him. That Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who had always been the Son at the right hand of the Father for all of eternity, was made to be sin, taking on the sins of man. It was in this moment on the cross 
where the father, unable to look on sin, would look away. It was this agony of his, the separation between him and the father that was causing him this grief, that was causing him this sorrow, that he says, even unto death. And here's the thing, I think that as God, as perfect Son of God, He was able to understand the horror of sin in ways that we cannot. It's hard for us to, to understand the gravity of our sin against a holy God. I've heard many different analogies of trying to describe God as holy, God is so far above, and then us is so, so much lower. I don't, none of that adequately describes our sin against a holy God. Jesus understanding this, understanding what this separation was going to mean, was in this great agony, was praying desperately. But even in this, he says, not as I will, but as you will. In perfect submission to the eternal plan of God, he says, not as I will, but as you will. Perfectly submitting to the Father. I think that we as Christians, we as the church, are very quick to add this to our prayers. They're very quick to pray for the will of God and say, but, but your will be done. But I think we're slow to understand, truly, what are we praying for when we pray for this? Because Jesus was praying for the will of God, knowing that it was going to lead to his crucifixion, knowing that it was going to lead to this agony, this separation from the Father, that it was going to all come on him on the cross, all of our sin, all of that wrath that we deserved, that is what he was saying. Your will be done, and that's what it was going to be. Like, when we pray for the will of God to be done, is that what we're praying? No matter what. No matter what, your will be done. Even if that means suffering for me, even if that means pain, even if that means extreme difficulty and a very far from easy life. Is that what we're praying when we say, your will be done? Because I want us to pray this. I don't want us to not pray this in fear but to pray this boldly, understanding that we're praying for God's will, and God's will is done every single time. But what do we see the disciples doing? What do we see them in this passage, in this moment? They've just been told that Jesus just told them, I'm going to die in two days. He's just told them that one of them is going to betray him. Jesus has just told them that they're all going to run away. Like this should be a moment of crisis. should be a moment of desperation for them. But we don't really see any of that in this passage. Any sort of desperation. Any sort of crying out to God in prayer. Any sort of dependence. It's no, we can do it. No, we can do it. They even fall asleep. Like, they're, they're not planning to abandon Jesus. Their intentions are good. But they misinterpret. They, they trust in their good intentions more than they're trusting in their weakness and inability to fight the sin, to, to resist temptation. Like, there's only one of these that we should follow. There's only one of these that models our submission and our great need. Because if the disciples would have understood their need, if they would have understood how needy and weak they were in this moment, 
they would have been clinging to Jesus. They would have been saying, no, 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 like, we can't do this without you. We are going to desert you. If, if it's left up to us, we're not going to be able to stand firm. We're not going to be able to resist the temptation. And they should have been crying out in this desperate prayer. The perfect Son of God, the perfect Jesus here was on his face. What does it say? It says, he fell on his face and prayed. And the weak disciples, we don't see any of that. We don't see any of that same type of desperation. That's that same type of need. Second point here. An understanding of our weakness should drive us to desperate prayer. An understanding of our weakness is what should drive us to desperate prayer. But does it? Like, do we really feel this desperate most of the time? Do we truly understand that? Like, do we understand that how desperate we are in each and every moment? If we don't, Let's read Romans 7 again. That we're unable, we're going to continue to do the things that we don't want to do. That we're unable to fight the sin in our lives because we don't have that strength in us. Paul, throughout the rest of his letters in the New Testament, is going to say often that left alone, you are slaves to sin. Unable to escape, you are slaves. That our depravity, our inability to do what we want to do, even if those are good things, should lead us to understanding that we are weak, that we are needy, that there is no good that we can do. But that's not just saying, well, then be strong. Muster up that strength. You can do it. Just try to be strong. Muster up that faith, we've said before. Be be confident in yourself. Like, that's that's not what Jesus is trying to teach you. That's not what he's been teaching all through Matthew. It's not be strong but it's totally rely on Him. We're going to see this kind of come to another spearhead here in this next passage. We're going to read the next section, um, 47 through 56. It says, And while He was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with Him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up to him and laid hands on Jesus, seized him, and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? And that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. 
So we see Jesus leading this, this great crowd into the garden. From what I read this week, there was, some say this was a group greater than 50. Some say it was a group greater than 1,000. Um, whatever it is, Matthew says it was a great crowd with swords and clubs. But in this moment, we see a ton going on. We see Judas coming up to Jesus, uh, identifying him with the kiss. We see the crowd, those from the crowd grab Jesus. We see um, one of the disciples, who Matthew doesn't identify, but John, of course, says it's Peter, um, pulls out a sword and um, starts an attack. We see, the, we see the disciples flee. We see him scatter. But there's a ton going on. And there's a ton of things that we could focus on from this. Like we could spend our time talking about Judas' act of betrayal. We could spend our time focusing on the fact that Judas looked like a real disciple for three years and then would fall away. We could talk about the crowds and their sin. We could talk about the, the scattering of these disciples that they all run away. And I don't want to gloss over any of these things. I don't want to skip past any of these things. But each and every one of these is exactly what Jesus has said was going to happen. Way back in Matthew 6 or 7, Jesus already said that there's going to be people in the end that are going to end up being false disciples. They're not, they're not going to be shown as being true. He's already said that he's going to be betrayed. He's already said the crowds are going to want to kill him. He's already said he's going to die. Like all of this, again, is not the plan of wicked man, but is the plan of God. But what, what can we, how do we as the church, what do we understand? How, what are we to get from this? Again, I think that what we see is our, our disciples who still don't understand their weakness. They still don't understand their own depravity, their own inability. That even Peter, at least Peter, trying to take action by himself, he tries to say, I'm going I'm to fix this problem. I'm going to do it a different way. I'm going to fix it with my own plan. But again, all through Matthew, Jesus was teaching, look, I'm, I'm not trying to, to change the physical things around me. I'm, I'm after your hearts. I'm after just your devotion. I'm after you. And just, he's calling them just to be faithful. We talked a couple weeks ago. He's calling them to be faithful until the end, until he returns. The call is to be faithful. And to understand that God is working for his own glory. That God, that his will is being done through this. That it's always been his will to redeem sinners for himself through Jesus. And that's what Jesus, that, that's what's happening. That is the very will of God playing out. And these disciples are still rejecting this. Are still trying to do their own thing. So like we said earlier, it's usually Peter who would open his mouth and and speak out. It's usually Peter that would, that would do these types of things. But here we see him pull out a sword and try to take action physically. I think it's safe to say that he probably wasn't aiming for the guy's ear. Um, it's not, his aim was about, we've been reading and through, through the first and second Samuel on Sunday nights, and it seems like his aim is about as good as Saul throwing a spear, uh, where he kept missing David. But he's trying to take action on him by, by himself. He's trying to say, no, like, I'm going to fix this. Jesus, don't worry about this. I'm going to do it. And we still see that he's not understanding what Jesus is saying. He's not trusting what Jesus is saying, that this has to happen. And he's been talking about that all through Matthew. 
And, and, and Jesus' response to him was, don't you understand, Peter? This is exactly, this is going exactly as I said it was going to. Like, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call down angels from heaven, these legions of angels? If I would ask Jesus, that, that God would send these for me. But just trust that this is going exactly according to plan. Like, that our call is, as followers of Jesus is not to, again, take actions in our own hands, to try to, try to do it ourselves, to try to do our own thing, to be strong enough, to defend Jesus, to say, no, 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 that, that's not how it's supposed to go. But trusting that God is sovereign, trusting that God is in control of what is going on, like, what we're called to do is understand this and just cling to Jesus. Like, that's what he's saying the whole time is, trust me. Trust me. Because if the, Bible's, if, if the Bible is correct in saying about how weak and how depraved and how unable we are, then that's our only hope. It's clinging. It's trying to hold on. But it's, you see, even that, we're not very good at. Even that, we struggle to do. And we see that it's actually our hope is that Jesus is clinging to us. Our, our, our hope is that he is the one that's doing this. Here's the thing. I, I kind of glazed over a little bit um, verse 32. We, we read it, but we didn't talk much about it. Verse 32 in Matthew 26 says, Jesus tells them, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Remember, Jesus has just told them in, this, in that passage that they're all going to run away. They're all going to betray him. They're all going to run away. They're all going to scatter. We're going to see they're all going to go run and hide, basically. And it's right after this that Jesus says, but I am going to go before you to Galilee. Even in their rejection, even in their retreat, none of them stood with him. But even then, he was the one that went before them to Galilee to restore that relationship. He was the one that pursued them. Like, that is the gospel. That is the story of the gospel. That even in their denial, even in their rejection, even in their failure, time and time again, and their desertion of him at the most crucial moment, that he would pursue them, that he would go after them. Like, that's the story of each and every person who is a Christian, each and every person who is saved by Jesus. That is the story. That God didn't save us when we were finally decided that we were good enough. It wasn't that we finally decided that, that we could do it or that we were finally worthy of being saved. But it was in the midst of our rejection, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our being super dirty in our sin. But that is when Jesus clung to us, even when we weren't clinging to him. At this point in Matthew, Jesus is less than 24 hours from his crucifixion. 24, less than 24 hours from the moment when he was going to die for the sins of man. And we see these disciples, instead of crying out in their desperation, crying out in their great need, they were somehow still trusting in their strength, they were somehow still trusting in their ability, taking action with a sword, falling asleep. We see them doing all sorts of things instead of being utterly 
dependent and just crying out in desperation and in weakness. Like, what I want to do is remind us that we are not strong. Super encouraging. We are not strong. That we are actually really, really weak. Intentional pause. But here's the thing. Paul would say that we can boast in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. It'll be up on the screen. This is God speaking to, to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We are weak, and we can boast in that, because in our weakness, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. He's our only hope. He's the only one that is strong. And for salvation, we're completely dependent on Him. Daily, we are completely dependent on Him. Like, we're going to see the, the disciples change or, and through, throughout the book of Acts. We see them, as Jesus comes back, the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and they would all go and, and be made into these, these bold gospel preachers who most would go to their death. And they, but they would, they would go through this process of learning this the hard way. Like, I don't want us to somehow think that we are strong enough to overcome sin, that we're somehow strong enough to do this ourselves. But that we are dependent, that we are weak. But we serve a Jesus, we serve a God that is not. Like, in our dependence, we cry out to Him in prayer. In our dependence, all we do is we seek Him. All we do is have hope that he is the one that is not letting us go. Like our only hope to kill the sin in our lives, our only hope to abstain from the things that ensnare us time and time again, our only hope to be faithful when the trials of life and, the, and all the difficulties that come with that, when all that comes, our only hope is Jesus. Everything I've said about weakness, depravity, depravity, our inability, all that is true. But see, as we are saved, those followers of Jesus, like our identity is not in our weakness. Our identity is not in our depravity. Our, our identity is not in all those things. Our identity is in Christ. Like our trust isn't in our failure, but it's in his power. It's in his victory. Our trust isn't in our inability our depravity, but our trust is in His perfection. Like, that is why He is our only hope. That is why He is the one we sing to. This is why He is the one we praise. Because we are weak, but we praise a Jesus who is beautiful and perfect and has saved us. Like, that is our only hope. Like, let us boast in our weakness. Let us understand our weakness and accept that because Jesus has saved us even when we're weak. And in that weakness, 
He is strong. Let's pray.